When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org, to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine. Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at MyCatholicHealthCare.org and live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Bureau. Uh, today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Uh, joining us will be Father Ryan McCarthy for the first half of a two-part series on adoption of frozen embryos. Is it ethical or is it not? The church hasn't declared definitively on this subject. So we'll have two episodes, one that says it is ethical and one that supports the fact that it may not be ethical. And that will air next week. So according to church teaching, every embryo, every new human being deserves to come into existence through the loving act we call the marital embrace, yet many do not. So Andrew, what is embryo adoption and why should our listeners care about this? Yeah, embryo adoption is basically acknowledging the fact that there are millions and millions at least a million in America and in many other countries as well, of human beings that are frozen in the embryologic stage, just a small number of cells, uh, usually created out of an in vitro fertilization procedure where with those being such expensive endeavors, they wrongly and unfortunately create many children and choose to only implant a handful of the ones that look the best. It's really a terrible thing, but the fact is that we've got millions of these human lives frozen in time, hoping to be implanted, and many of them never never really stand that chance because the parents have moved on from childbearing at that point. And it's, it's pretty clear uh, from church teaching that in vitro fertilization is, is never a moral act, correct? That's right. Yeah, everybody top to bottom. And on both of these episodes are in complete agreement on that. IVF is wrong for many reasons. Right. And we did an episode on that uh, with uh, Chris and uh, William Stigl earlier this year. It was it was incredible. So, yeah, Andrew, telling. you're the resident bioethicist on, on the Dr. Dr. team here. And you told <laughs> me that we should first cover the method that Thomas Aquinas would use to evaluate whether or not an act was moral. How do we do that? Well, if I'm the expert, Tom, that's just how low the bar is. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's important to to think about how are we thinking about this? Because when we talk about embryo adoption, like many things that are controversial, a lot of emotions involved. Uh, many of us know people, care about people who have undergone this as an act of charity in their mind. And, and the idea that it might be a wrong a wrong act is very offensive to them. And so it's important for us to, to discuss the actual details. So St. Thomas and kind of Aristotelian uh, philosophy and moral analysis of an act talks about the object of an act. And St. Thomas says that which is directly willed, what you are actually doing with intention and willing it. That is the object of the act. And that, I think, is kind of the crux of this whole discussion. Um, because that's, that's obviously what it all comes down to. And in traditional moral theology, we also look at intentions and circumstances. Because otherwise, if you're just looking at the object of an act, you could use that to justify, you know, the ends justify the means type of thinking. Right. Really, really an act is frequently a series of acts okay. that you have to intend multiple little ends until you get to the final end. And those ah, are the means. And so, so when we talk about the object, it's usually the final end that is willed. Um, which also includes the, the means. Okay. So it's more than the ends justify the means. That's right. The, the ends justify the means would not be a way to get through this. Uh, this is supposed to peer into that and see through it. And can you give us an example from another realm of ethics? 
Yeah, you know, especially if, if you're looking at those three things, the object, the intentions, and the circumstances, uh, you could look at an example of anything. If I picked up a phone off the table and put it in my pocket and walked home, that could be a good act. If it was my phone and I was about to forget it and I'm expecting a call, it could be a very bad act if it was somebody else's phone and I thought it looked great and I wanted to keep it. Um, so it's a way of evaluating the morality of the act. Really, it also bears to say that there are some acts that are intrinsically evil. Under no circumstances, and it doesn't matter your intentions, never will they be a good act. Those are, are discounted for the purposes of this discussion. We're talking about acts that in themselves are either good or neutral acts. Very good. And the last time we did an episode on this topic, we weren't able to find somebody to take the con position. We had Father McCarthy on before we were airing on EWTN, and we got a lot of pushback, Andrew. You want to comment about that and what we're trying to do and not to do here? Yeah, I, I think people, a lot of times, especially Catholics, are very unsettled when there's items up for debate because we are blessed as Catholics to have the magisterium. And for things that are super complicated, we have guidance. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And that's how we can ascribe to truth um, because we have people teaching us, especially in areas we don't completely understand. This is a legitimate area of discourse because the church has not ruled on it. Um, I, I think many people see the analogies with IVF. Uh, it's a totally different act. It's not IVF. Um, but it, the, that's where we get into the composition. We'll be talking about this a lot. There's some elements that are similar. And so the church has said IVF is definitely bad. The church has not spoken on this. And so our goal is to, to not even necessarily take a position on this. It's right. mostly to advance the discussion and make people aware of it. If it's something that you've not heard of or you naturally thought, I thought that was totally wrong or I thought that was totally good, Turns out it's pretty controversial and really good people disagree about it. Very good. And before getting to our expert, uh, we'll go to our patented medical trivia question of the day, which deals with human embryology. Yeah, this is first year, first week of medical school type stuff. So the study of human development from conception until about eight weeks of gestational age is called embryology or the study of the embryo. After that, the developing baby is referred to as a fetus which means young one, when the organs and external anatomy look like a little human being. So my question is, what is the medical term used to refer to a new one-celled human being that has all the genetic material it needs to develop into an adult human? It's a one-word answer. You may well know it now. You can think about it. I'll give it to you at the end of the episode. But right after the break here on Dr. Doctor, we'll have Father Ryan McCarthy in the pro position for frozen embryo adoption. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, when we are joined now by Father Ryan McCarthy. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, Indiana, and currently pastor of Holy Rosary Catholic Church in Indianapolis. He's got a doctorate in sacred theology uh, and moral theology with a focus on medicine and reproductive ethics. He functions as a moral theologian in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis and chaplain to the local guild of the Catholic Medical Association. He's taught as an adjunct professor at Mount St. Mary's of the West Seminary in Cincinnati and Marion University in Indianapolis. He did his doctoral dissertation on uh, what to do with the least of our brothers, finding moral solutions to the problem of endangered embryos. He's probably one of the world experts on this subject. And that was published by St. Benedict's Press in 2013. He's been researching and writing on frozen embryos since 1999. Father Ryan, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks. Good to be back. So, so Father, how has the church demonstrated it, its own concern about frozen embryos and their disposition? Well, the biggest concern the church has shown is in their creation, that the creation of the frozen embryos is the real difficulty that this should never be done. So whenever you're looking at the problem of frozen embryos, you're looking at something that should have never been done. And now we have these small, little, wonderful children who are in an absurd state. And so the church actually refers to it as an absurd state and says, there's no clear path what's to be done after you've taken these bad steps. It's always difficult when you, and you know this from any, everyone knows this from anything in life, when you do a bunch of wrong things and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a difficult situation, 
there's not always an easy, aha, this is how I undo the bad that I did. It's like the Jurassic Park guy. Nobody stopped to think <laughs> if they should do this. Correct. Right? <laughs> Correct. I mean, I think they did briefly and then blew right past it. <laughs> you know, Father, one of the things that, that makes this such a great topic is that the church has not in, uh, issued a definitive statement on the moral or immoral options for disposing of these embryos. Um, so many things are cut and dry. This one is not. And do you see a position coming from the church in the future? Or if not, why? I don't. Um so I've, I had some, I don't have any over there anymore, but I had some friends who worked actually in the CDF and they said they were looking at this question a few years ago and then nothing came out. And so I'm assuming the nothing came out was the decision not to publish anything, not to come out with it. And in fact, uh, they've been pretty clear about the fact that they're ambiguous on embryo adoption at this point in time. And they've got no intention, I don't think, of any time in the near future going anywhere close. I think it's one of those difficult questions, although I think it's much clearer than um, the question, but I think it's like gift or tots, um, gametidium fallopian transfer. Um, I can't remember what tots abbreviates for, but I think it's like those things. It's just kind of, it's, it's such a hard situation that the church is kind of saying, well, it's not clear. And I don't know if we're ever going to refine that position. Wow. So father, if, if you could, you know, just maybe almost as a thesis, could you give us just a 20-second elevator speech of how, how to describe your position as a pro-embryo adoption? The easiest way would probably be saying that on a natural level, the largest injustice done in the act of IVF is towards the embryo. And so the primary concern needs to be uh, restoring justice to the embryo, that the real evil done is the evil done towards the embryo. And so embryo adoption is a route by which you can restore justice to the embryo. Very good. We love it when it's so succinct. It'll be easy to examine this. So uh, Andrew was telling in the beginning about how Aquinas would examine the morality of an act. And part of it was the object of the act. So how does the object of the act apply to embryo adoption? It's probably the place where the disagreement takes place you know, ah. amongst moral theologians is defining the object. I think once oh. you define the object. So uh, moral theologians who think that it's okay, think it's just simply a matter of transferring an embryo as far as just taking an embryo from one place and putting it in the other. Most moral theologians who disagree with it would talk about it, how it's some sort of simulation of a marital act or act of impregnation. Um, so how you define that act is going to do a lot about how you define the terms and how you define that act is going to say a lot about how the solution to the problem is understood. Okay. So is, is that a standard problem we have with analysis of other acts or is this unique in some ways? I think it is unique in the sense that it's so far removed from anything that we have to observe on a natural level. Like there is an, natural understanding of what pregnancy is and a natural series of events that leads to pregnancy. And so in our minds, all those things are contained in one act. So if you like take reference to St. Thomas Aquinas, who had a really bad embryology. So St. Thomas didn't understand embryos. <laughs> and he didn't understand how fertilization and implantation took place. I mean, you know, we're talking 800 years ago. They didn't have very good science on these things. That could be a future uh, show, actually, I think. But it could be. It could be. Uh, so normally, you know, for all of human history until 40, at this point, what, 50 years ago, if, with one exception, if someone said they got pregnant, everyone knew what happened, right? There was yes. an act of intercourse that took place in order for that to happen, with the exception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So the idea that you could start bearing a child outside of that is an entirely new concept. And so wrapping our heads around those different parts of the act that in the minds of everyone are kind of one, not because they are actually one, but because for all of history, there was only one way for this to take place. There were these series of things that had to occur in order for a woman to become pregnant. And so we just said, well, then if then, right? If pregnant, then this took place. And now it's if pregnant, 
this, 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 or this could have taken place. So we pulled those things apart. And I would argue that frozen embryo adoption does a good job of trying to bring those things together, particularly for the sake of the child. Um, in other words, what's been pulled apart for the child is the identity of mother and father. And I just don't mean the gametes by which the child was conceived, but you have the genetic mother, you have the you could have you could have in modern IVF world you could have one mother who's actually going to carry the child you could have another mother who's actually going to receive the child afterwards uh, and with the possibility of cloning you could also have a donor for the DNA and a donor for the egg and all of a sudden you're ripping apart motherhood into all these different parts and a child has a right to its mother and so the idea is in embryo adoption that you're bringing all that back together by an act of adoption. Exactly the same as what happens when a child is uh, either lost because of, loses its parents because of death or is abandoned. The idea is someone adopts that child and incorporates them back into a family. And then as the family is a basic unit of human society, therefore incorporates them back into human society. So, so Father, since in vitro fertilization is immoral... And part of in vitro fertilization is the implantation of the embryo. How is in vitro fertilization immoral, but yet frozen embryo adoption could be moral? So the, I would argue pretty easily, I think, that the act changes once you have a new being come into okay. existence. So in vitro fertilization is illicit and immoral because it brings a human being into existence outside of the marital act. Well, that's done once fertilization has taken place. And you can't undo that without killing the embryo, right? right? There's no way to cause that embryo to not be in existence anymore. And we wouldn't want to, even if we could, because now it's human life and it's good. So once that comes into existence and you're starting to talk about the acts, not towards a potential child, but towards a real child. Um, and so I would argue from that point on, you're trying to restore justice to the child that has been brought into existence in an unjust act. So I guess one, one of the other ways to think about this for, for our listeners is, you know, this, this is all a matter of debate because marriage is sacred and Correct. the marital act is sacred. Correct. Um, we're dissecting the marital act is what we're doing. Well, um, not really. I mean, that all occurs before. Like, I okay. mean, it is. But when you're talking about embryo adoption, the marital act has, on a biological level, the marital act merely puts gametes in proximity to one another, right? Right. Okay. I mean, the sperm fertilizes the egg. The man doesn't actually fertilize the egg. I joke around <laughs> sure. that there's no joystick that occurs that after relations, a man doesn't grab the joystick and guide like a video game. <laughs> right. Right. So well, I, I guess is there is there any more guidance or depth on what is the sacred part of marriage? You've got the debate about the object, but then also the debate about what's sacred. And I'm I'm borrowing this some from from the discussion we had in Denver at the Catholic Medical Association. We had this big debate. Unfortunately, I wish you were there, uh, but there was an argument really about what part of marriage is protected under the sacredness. Um, whether it was just, you know, the marital act itself, just the conception, or this idea of this generative continuum was the term that was used, that this whole process is protected under marriage. How, I guess, how would you respond to that? Or do we have any, any official guidance on that from the magisterium? I would say there's lots of documents that could point to it, but I don't think there's any official breakdown from the magisterium in that regards, I think the answer is pretty simple. Marriage is sacred in itself. It's a sacrament, right? And children are proper to it as the fruit of that sacrament and as the fruit of marriage, but children don't belong to the marriage per se. You can have a marriage without children. So the children are the fruit of a marriage, but they're never per se part of the marriage. Father, how did you become so interested in this topic? Um, so way back when, in 1999, uh, I started a license in moral theology, which is the prerequisite degree to a doctorate for mm -hmm. church degrees. And I was looking for a topic that would be uh, 
in all honesty, uh, the bishop wanted me to do something on marriage and family. And I was looking for a topic that was kind of new and interesting and different. And this was new and interesting and different in 1999. So I started doing research and then it kind of opened up to all other family and marriage issues. So I was like, oh, this is great. And the bishop liked the topic. So I ran with it. Do you have any idea how often this is done? I don't know currently how often it is done. Um, I know several people who have done it personally. Um, I'm kind of in that world. Um, I've had two or three people write me letters after they did it that they had read the book that I wrote and said the book helped influence their decision to do it. Um, but I don't know the frequency. There's a probably the largest group that does this is the Snowflake Adoption Group, which is a run by evangelical Christians. They probably have statistics on how many snowflake adoptions they've facilitated. How would you answer the question that, so a woman wants to adopt one of these, but what if she, you know, she's still married and has a husband and adopts one of these instead of trying to have a child with her husband? Is there any moral calculus involved there? Um, I'd say it's the same moral calculus involved in any adoption. Right. So there's plenty of married couples who adopt children who still have the biological capability of reproducing and couples have to decide whether that makes sense in their marriage. And it's going to be an act of charity, right? It's not an obligatory act to adopt a child. So you have to say, does it make sense in our marriage? And can we extend this act of charity to this child who's in this frozen state? There's also another prudential decision and judgment about whether, uh, participating in frozen embryo adoption creates scandal uh, by encouraging people to do IVF um, or blurring the lines for people between the distinction of IVF and embryo adoption, or even you could yourself be participating in the evil act. It could be kind of a scandal for yourself by having desired the IVF to take place so that you could adopt the child. So you have to make all those judgments. So just because it's morally listed doesn't mean it's prudential for any given couple to adopt an embryo and bring it to term, just like it wouldn't be prudential for any given couple to adopt any other already born child and bring it into their family. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up, Father, because last time we did the episode with you, we got some negative feedback from some Catholic former IVF uh, doctors who had, you know, converted from their way and said that that episode gave cover to their former colleagues to say they could be good Catholics and do IVF. How would you, in the best terms, answer that charge? I mean, the analogy I would use would be pretty harsh, so I don't know that I would regularly use it, but it's like trying to justify rape by saying that someone's going to adopt the child. So it's okay. Like you're doing grave harm uh, to the couples that you participate with IVF because those couples are committing a mortal sin when they participate in IVF. If all the other conditions for mortal sin are present Uh, and you're doing a grave harm to the child that's conceived. And just because someone's willing to rescue that child after the fact doesn't justify the evil that's done. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's well put. You know, Father, to, to be contrarian, one of the things... Well, let, that- me, let, me, let me take a step back because I don't want to... I want to anticipate it. There's another evil uh, in rape, which is the violence towards the woman, which right. IVF doesn't have the same sort of physical violence towards the woman. Um, right. So there is a distinction between the two things. Okay. Yeah, that's a good distinction. You, you know, Father, sometimes when after our debate out in Denver, obviously this was a huge topic of conversation. One of the things that was brought to me was the, the charge that, you know, embryo adoption is really the ends justifying the means. Um, we want the child to be cared for and loved. We feel bad for the child. So because of that, we can do this. How would you argue that, that point? Well, I mean... I think the motive for any adoption is the same, right? You want a child to be cared for. You want the child to be comforted. So you do something extraordinary, uh, supererogatory, beyond what is normally asked of someone in order to care for that child. So I think the same is true. Uh, And you're looking for a moral route 
to do so. So I, I, I don't have the, I mean, a lot of people are struggle with the conflating marital relations and the marital act and marriage with embryo adoption because there's an implantation of an embryo that takes place. Um, I, I see that connection as completely accidental. Um, it has nothing to do with the marital act or marital relations because it has nothing to do with marital act or marital relations. It's a surgical procedure. So any coincidence in appearance is accidental, new to the nature of the child that's being adopted. So I don't really see it as anything more than providing appropriate food and shelter for the child that has been adopted. And just as you provide food, shelter, clothing for the child you'd adopt who is post-birth, you do the same for an embryo you adopt before birth. I think the problem that a lot of people have with embryo adoption is they don't take adoption seriously. Um, mm. They don't think that adoptive parents are real parents. Um, and they'll use language that points to that usually in their arguments. They'll say something like, well, the child's real parents, meaning the biological parents or the people who provided the gametes. But if you actually talk to people who've been adopted or have been involved in adoptions, particularly children who've been adopted, when they talk about their real parents, they're talking about their adoptive parents. And then they make the distinction of my biological mother or you know the woman who gave birth to me. Um, but if they say my mother, it's the person who adopted them or my father, it's the person who adopted them, not the person who was involved in their conception. And I think the distinction this probably goes back to the fact that Roman law recognized adoption is a real thing and yes. English common law did not. So oh. there was no such mm -hmm. thing as adoption in English common law, which is what our Western tradition in the U S provides for. Um, wow. Yeah, it was pretty much in the 19th century before adoption was really a thing uh, in English-speaking countries as being understood as their real child. And you can understand why, because if you adopt a child, then who inherits, right? Like under English common law, you have primogenitor go, coming right. in, the firstborn son. Well, if you adopt, who's the firstborn son? The first actually born or from the time of adoption? or mm. So it messes with that common law principle. But in Roman law, they never had any problems with it. When you adopted someone, you adopted them and they became part of your family. And there was no distinction, which is the scriptural basis for using adoption as a model for how we belong to God. Yes. Once we're baptized, we're incorporated into his household. We become members of his household and we become part of his family. And we're not fake children of God, right? You and I are not fake children of God because we're adopted. Uh, our sonship is true in the one sonship of Jesus Christ, but we don't have it by nature, right? We have it by adoption, by grace. So I think the struggle is that people think of adoption as not real parenthood or not true parents. And that's certainly not the experience of the people who live through adoptions, both parents and children. And it's certainly not the theological way that the church has looked at it in regards to the relationship between us and the Heavenly Father. I love Man, this. That's that was great. an that's, unexpected angle. Yeah, I, that's very in, intriguing and kind of indicting as well, just kind of challenging us. How, how are we looking at this for the discussion? Tom, I think it's yeah, probably time. It, we're going to be back. We have a lot more to talk about. But okay. We'll go to break now and come back shortly with Father McCarthy talking about embryo adoption. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and Father McCarthy arguing the pro position in favor of uh, embryo adoption being a licit, reasonable, okay practice. And uh, Father, I've really enjoyed this so far. One Thanks. of the things we were talking off air that, that I'd like to get on the show as well is where does the burden of proof lie? Uh, and you brought up a good point that it might not be on the pro side. No, I don't think it is. In general, in moral theology, the principle of it is if it's not forbidden, it's allowed, or where there is doubt, there is freedom or liberty. Now, that those two principles can easily be abused by just saying, well, this specific explicit act isn't forbidden. So even though it's clear that other acts very similar to it are, um, this act isn't. But I think in this case, we have enough church documentation that has left intentionally left the door open on this to say that it's not been forbidden. And I think you 
always have to stretch to try to argue that any of the documents, Dignitas Personae or um, Humanae Vitae, oh, sorry, not Humanae Vitae. Um, Donum Vitae? Donum Vitae or Veritatis Splendor make an explicit condemnation of this because they don't. And uh, Rome has not condemned this. I think there's a reason they haven't condemned this because they don't see clearly that it's actually wrong. Uh, but I do think they probably have some serious concerns, and I have some serious concerns about people abusing it and not taking the time to make a prudential, a real prudential judgment about what are the different factors playing into not only whether I could do this without scandalizing the outside world, but also whether I myself am uh, sinning because I've already, in my heart, embraced the IVF, the sins that were um, done in order to uh, achieve an end that I want, which is pregnancy because I'm struggling with fertility. So this is not a fertility treatment, right? Um, this is an act of charity towards an abandoned embryo. You know, Father, you bring up a good point with the prudential judgments, really discerning that. And the phrase that comes to mind for me is the moral certitude. And how can we look at this with the confidence uh, to move forward for people who may be called to do that, especially with really kind of the lack of official positions either way? So I think the moral certitude comes in really looking interiorly at your own motives and then the circumstances around it. So if your motive is to overcome infertility in a way that's allowed by the church, no matter what it takes, then you're probably embracing. Uh, and there's a, there's a couple of distinctions here. So there's formal cooperation in an act and material cooperation in an act informal op cooperation in an act is in when you share the intention of the person who performed the act and you can have formal cooperation before, during, or after an act has taken place. Right. Wow. I can embrace that evil act. Um, so, and when I do that, uh, I make the sin my own. So if I hear that someone's going to murder someone and I think that's a good idea, I'm glad they're taking care of that person. So I don't have to, I've now formally participating in the murder. Right. Um, and if during the act, I'm doing any of the ways of cooperating with, them, I'm cheering them on, I'm supporting them. I'm giving them intentional material support. Here's a gun, go do it. Then I'm formally cooperating in the act itself. And then afterwards, if I'm like, Oh, good. I'm glad they shot that guy because if they hadn't, I would have. Then I'll, I'm formally cooperating the act, even though I'm after the fact, right? Because I'm intending the act. Um, so that's, that makes the sin your own. Like when you're formally participating in the act, when you have the formal participation in the act, you're making the sin your own, whether or not you're participating material in the act or not. Um, so if you have formal cooperation with the evil acts that created the embryos, uh, you're like, oh, good, I'm glad they created extra embryos so I can adopt one. Well, then now you've participated in that act. And so you're no longer free to pursue that because for you it would be evil because you're, you've embraced the evil that has already occurred. So that's a real difficult thing for people who are struggling with infertility to make sure they're not actually intending the evil act that had occurred. And how about the prudential judgment surrounding scandal um, in the husband, the wife, the doctors? So I don't think there's a lot of it at this point in time, just because there are so many abandoned embryos. And I think from what I know, frozen embryo adoption is so rare. I mean, it doesn't happen that often. Uh, it's an exception to the rule. And generally people are seeing it for what it is, which is an act of charity where these people are seeing these embryos and trying to rescue them. Is, um, is there any other moral disposition of these embryos that you considered in your thesis, in your doctorate? So currently there does not seem to be any other thing to do with the embryos. So um, early on in freezing embryos, they thought they might have a shelf life. Um, they might die in the frozen state, but with modern techniques of freezing the embryos, which actually is not just freezing, it's kind of freeze drying the embryos. It's removing the water so that the ice crystals don't form, piercing the cellular walls, 
so you get the moisture very low in the embryos, and then they freeze them after that. There's a theoretical no shelf life on these things. They could be there for a long time, hundreds of years, and perhaps still be, I don't even know what you want to call it, um, rehydrated and allowed to grow again. I, I mean, thought, I don't know what. Yeah. Because we, we believe that they're animated, right? So it's not reanimated. So I don't even know what you call it. Um, uh, brought back to, um, I don't know, uh, you're, you're the doctors. Maybe you can tell me what the formal term of brought out of dormancy. So they're yeah. dormant and now they're brought out of dormancy. Viability? Um, I don't know. Um, uh, but we believe they're still alive, right? So right. I don't know. So, yeah, I don't know if there is a term for it. Um, um, so what, uh, the crazy so, idea I had, and I, I know you shot it down four years ago, so here it is to shoot down again. Why couldn't you just baptize them with water? They're baptized, but an unintended consequence is that they die as they're baptized with water. Because um, you couldn't get there. Um, so from what I understand, and you two are the doctors, but from what I understand of the biology, um, a drop of non-isotonic solution on these children would uh, essentially destroy them instantly, right? So in the embryonic stage, you just can't put water, pure water on these babies. And saline solution is not an appropriate matter for baptism. Right. So there's no way to get the water onto the child to baptize the child without destroying it. And it takes, you have to pour water three times or dunk someone three times while wow. invoking the Trinity. So by the time you got to the second drop of water, got it. The embryos destroyed. So you could never finish the baptism. Very good. Um, so what about um, surrogacy? The church has declared that surrogate parenthood is wrong. How is this not surrogacy? Because surrogacy is pulling that those rights of the child apart further, right? So it's already been conceived outside of wedlock, and now it's been abandoned by its biological mother and father and placed in a freezer. Now to take that embryo and now implant it in a woman who's not going to keep that child is just pulling apart motherhood more, right? Now we're going from one mother to two mothers, and then there's going to be three mothers, and then there's going to be four mothers. And the idea is that there's an obligation to restore this child's rights, not further attack the child's rights. So the child has a right to be, I would say the child has a right to be born of its own mother, right? And if its biological mother has abandoned it and someone else has adopted it, then it now has a right to be born of its new mother. Wow. That's that's a powerful way of describing it as well, just getting at the adoption point again. Yeah. You know, Father, one of the things it sounds like talking to you, we, we were joking off air, a lot of our questions are, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, and, and you tactfully pointed out that, hey, after the child is conceived, that part's done, this is something separate. Um, how, how can we move forward with kind of the two groups, you know, for for maybe as an analogy, we... We did a dueling episode a few years ago on brain death. And mm -hmm. uh, with that, there's always more cases, new information. It seems as though we things will shake out over time. There may be consensus built. How, how do we move forward with this and consensus if this is primarily a philosophical understanding of the act? I think further dialogue and conversations have to take place. Um, I would argue that those who argue against embryo adoption don't have a very good or very sound philosophical grounding. Um, they don't make very good philosophical distinctions. They tend to throw out terms in a sloppy wage like ontological or metaphysical um, in relationship to things that there's some articles that have been written that talk about the ontological connection between a mother and its child, right? I mean, it sounds like a very strong statement. It's meaningless, right? It means the child exists and the mother exists, right? Ontological means to be in existence. Right. So there's an ontological relationship between myself and you guys, right? <laughs> we exist. Like, <laughs> yeah. we exist, right? So what we're talking about is not an ontological relationship. We're talking about a maternal relationship. And when you make that finer distinction and throw out the, the ridiculous, distracting 
kind of straw man, red herring type of statements of ontological relationship. You just say, well, there's a maternal relationship that the abandoned embryo has had destroyed because it's been created and abandoned in the situation. Well, now the question is, how do we restore that maternal relationship? Not some concern about the ontological relationship because they're related by genetics, right? You could also talk about the genetic relationship between the mother, but the genetic relationship between the mother and child doesn't doesn't attack its essential being, right? Which is what ontology is. So when you make a term like an ontological relationship, it sounds like you're creating this really strong bond and it is a really strong bond, but it's a bond that all of us who are in existence share with God, right? Our ontological existence is because God holds us in being. And he holds the frozen embryo in being, he holds the mother in being, he holds me in being, and the whole world in being all at the same time. So when there's not really good philosophy grounding the discussion, I think it confuses the question. Um off air, Father, you mentioned some very fascinating things about why it would not be prudential for the church to say it was an allowed procedure, even if they believed it was. Could you share some of those with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, it's anyone who has kids, you know, if you say to your kids who are, you know, harassing you, can we watch television? Can we watch television? Can we watch television? And you say to your kids, you may watch 15 minutes of television. The announcement from all the kids goes, dad said we could watch television, right? (laughs) Dad said we could watch 15 minutes of television, but dad said we could watch television. And in other situations in morality, the same thing has happened. So the easy example without being too controversial would be the question of like the Friday abstinence from meat, which is Part of the universal code of canon law is that Catholics abstain from meat on Fridays, every Friday, not just during Lent. But local bishops' conferences are able to adopt different ways of following that. And so the U.S. bishops, after the 1983 code, adopted the standard of they abstain from meat or they substitute another appropriate penance or act of charity. But all U.S. Catholics heard was, I can eat meat on Friday, right? Like, And so... I'd say 99% of Catholics probably don't know that they are bound to abstain from meat on Friday or substitute another penance or act of charity because all they heard is we can eat meat on Friday now. So I think there is some prudential wisdom in the church not approving frozen embryo adoption because I think all people would hear was we can, as long as we don't do the IVF, we can have IVF babies. We just have to adopt them, charge forward without caring about the scandal and the prudential aspects of it and the formal cooperation and the evil acts, that would all be lost. And it would just be, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're Catholic, you can have as many frozen embryos as you want because Catholics just want to have as many babies as possible. And it just kind of would fall into that whole Catholic myth of if you're Catholic, you're obliged to have as many babies as possible as quickly as possible. You know, I guess – Getting at that, that there's kind of a there are maybe as a follow up idea. Say as we are discussing that this is a licit option and we don't share in the intention, especially somebody who's not really considering it for themselves, so to speak. Um, what do we owe these embryos as a society, as a church, myself, just as a Catholic, a Christian? What do I so, owe these embryos? As an individual, you owe them nothing, right? Because you didn't committed any injustice towards them. Uh, and I'd say the church in in the strict sense of justice owes them nothing because the strict church has continuously spoken out on their behalf and tried to protect them. Um, the societies that tolerate this uh, owe them uh, the ability to thrive as much as that is possible. So society should be facilitating uh you know life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for these embryos. Um, and Basic, you know, in in the U.S., basic Declaration of Independence constitutional rights. Um, They have the right to live and to pursue happiness and uh, to be free of the prisons that they're in. And so the society should be facilitating that and also, obviously, not continuing to perpetuate the evil by creating more. Um, So there's an obligation for society to stop creating embryos outside of the marital act uh, in an unjust and immoral manner. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of hope of that, but I think that's the right thing on society's side. 
So, so with embryo adoption, although although you would hold that it's licit, it's not something that necessarily should be widespread, so to speak. It would, I mean, it should be widespread in a perfect society and culture where our whole society and culture realizes the evil we do, you know, a la um, Jonah and the whole society puts on sackcloth and ashes and repents from it and afterwards realizes, oh no, the harm we have done, we need women who are willing to be charitable to adopt these frozen embryos and bring them because our society has a abused them and brought them into existence. I mean, outside of unlikely scenarios like that, no, you have to be very careful about what and who you're cooperating with and your own personal intentions. And so I don't think it should be advertised as a, I think the difficulty, and this is where the scandal comes. And I think this is where legitimate concern comes is this is not uh, Catholic IVF, right? Like this is not a Catholic alternative to IVF. This is, adoption and uh, you're adopting a child and uh, bringing that child into existence. Sorry, not bringing into existence. Um, it's that difficult phrase again, right? Into maturity. <laughs> into maturity, <laughs> into full maturity is part of that obligation parents have to educate children. In fact, you know, that I, I would argue that of the role of parents of procreation and education, uh, procreation stops from my perspective uh, as soon as the embryo creates and everything after that is really education leading the child to the good so even the mother providing shelter and nutrition in the womb is part of building that child up and leading that child to the good father I love it you're describing it so well I guess one kind of take-home thing for me or, or maybe one more piece of advice from you say I've got uh, a family coming in and they are asking me about this. Um, the, the, the people I've cared for in that situation before have always been struggling with infertility, although they needn't be. What, what do I do as a Catholic healthcare professional? And can I send everybody to you to talk to? What, what do we do? Uh, here, I'll have, a, I'll have a plug. I think you can refer them to the book uh, before you refer them to me. Is that? There you go. Um, yes, indeed. So the book is available as a, um, from Amazon. I think only as a, at this point in time, only as a Kindle book. But you can oh. contact the publisher for a hard copy or you can contact me for a hard copy. Um, but I think informing their conscience is the first step. So when they come in and they have these ideas about what and why they're doing it, I wouldn't push back hard on them in any way, one way or the other. I just say, I think... This is a really controversial thing in the church, and there's a lot of moral issues. I think you should inform your conscience before you go forward on this. And then maybe we'll have a conversation after you do that. And this is one good resource for it. Uh, you can read this and make sure that you're coming to this question from the same way that the church would be. I mean, I would argue the book, even though I can't argue the book presents the church's position, if the church were to come out with a pro position, I think the position would be similar to the one I argue in the book. So, um, I mean, I don't think it's, the, I obviously I can't make it the church's official position, but I think this is kind of the way the church would approach the question. Is there an imprimatur on your book? There is an imprimatur on the book. So yeah, it is officially approved. Thank you, Father. This has it. been a wonderful defense of the pro position. I hope um, that listeners take it to heart and read your book if they have questions. Yeah, um, I am, uh, I mean, to my, I have other jobs, but to the extent that I'm uh, available, I am happy to help couples who are struggling with questions on this. Thank Thanks, you so Father. much, Father. God bless. You're welcome. Same to you. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the medical trivia question about human embryology. Tom, what's yes. the answer? So what is the first step of the embryo? What is it called when it is just one cell? It's called a zygote. Z-Y-G-O-T-E. The term was actually coined in uh, 1878 by a German. You know, who else back then? They were big in, in science. Apparently from the Greek zygotos, meaning to be yoked, to be together, like a yoke of oxen. You now have the, the genetic material from the sperm and the egg yoked together as a zygote. Andrew, Man, I love it. There was a ton of information in there. Most of it good. Yeah. Actually, all of it good. What are your top three takeaways? 
Yeah, I I found Father advocated for his position very strongly. Number one, uh, it has not been condemned by the church. Uh, I'll be interested to see what the the con side says to that. But Father felt very strongly that they always, uh, when they talk about it, they never condemn it. And uh, that is very telling. Uh, Number two, all of this takes place after the marital act, and it is not the marital act. That's Father's position saying that it's okay. Okay, it's it's licit. But there was um, never a marital act, but the usurping of the marital act that's it, right. takes place that's after right. that. It's not it's not a, a false marital act. The baby's already there is, right. is the point. And number three, uh, I found this indicting, was that he, he said people who struggle with this have a poor understanding of adoption. Mm. And he used the analogy that we're obviously adopted children of God and we are not fake children of God. And so he he drew on you know experience of people who have been adopted, who've adopted people, uh, and said for for people without an understanding or experience with that, it's it's easy to think of that as a se- second class parenting, but in reality, it is parenting. And with a proper understanding of adoption, uh, this is really just the earliest form of adoption. So I love our faith. I love that people uh, can disagree and we have the same tools to make decisions and we're trying to do the best we can. And Father's a good example of the pro side and I'm excited to see the other half on the con side. Yes, and as he said four years ago, and I know he agrees today, if the church declared this was wrong, he would be right with the church. Yep, amen. So thanks for being with us for this episode of Dr. Doctor. If you like what you heard here and you want to hear more, go to our website, drdoctor.org. You can search uh, by topic or guest over 290 of our previous shows. And now we offer a video version of our podcast. So you can just click on the YouTube link at the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org. And if you have a question or a great idea for an episode topic, click where it says submit a question and tell us what you think. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.